Hello and welcome to the Planning to Teach and Retire Rich podcast. I am your co-host, Scott Downhauer, and today I'm joined by, as always, Tony and Dina Isola. Uh, we have a really great guest on today. We're really excited about it. I'm actually going to hand off to, I'm not sure, either Tony or Dina to introduce our guest today. Thank you, Scott. Uh, good afternoon. And we are thrilled to have Barbara Roper today. She is the Director of Investor Protection for the Consumer Federation of America, uh, where she's been since 1986. So, you know, she's seen quite a bit over the years. Um, CFA is an alliance of approximately 300 pro-consumer organizations, and in turn, they represent more than 50 million individual consumers. So when people say, who's looking out for you, it's the CFA. She has a long history of speaking out on investor protection issues and has conducted studies of abuses in the financial planning industry and has called for reform and, and modification in the industry. And we're just really thrilled to have her today. Barbara, thanks so much for taking time out to join us. Thanks for having me. Yep. It's great to have you on, Barbara. I think for our audience, you'll be such a terrific uh, resource for maybe some of the things that people see every day and feel that they have no power over. Yeah. I, I'm really excited. When Tony uh, told me that you were coming on, um, I was I was really excited. We've interviewed uh, Micah. Hauptman um, over at the uh, Teach and Retire Rich podcast, Dan Otter and I. And I think other than Dan Otter, I think the two people that I retweet the most are are Micah Hauptman and you, Barbara. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, that, uh, I'm that sycophant who continues to retweet you all the time. Hey, we appreciate it. <laughs> appreciate it. Tweets, are, tweets are the lifeblood of our advocacy efforts, right? Exactly. Exactly. So um, I'd like to start off with just a real simple question. Um, I know Dina sort of introduced the Consumer Federation of America, but I'd like to understand exactly what does the Consumer Federation of America, what does it do and, and what is your role there? Sure. So CFA was created in 1968. This is our 50th anniversary year to represent consumer organizations in Washington. The consumer movement had started as largely a state and local movement. So CFA was created as a federation of those groups to be the voice in Washington before Congress and the regulatory agencies. We work on a broad range of issues, everything from product and food safety to energy efficiency to a wide range of activities on financial services issues. There's always been a focus on financial services issues, whether it's banking, insurance, investments. I was actually hired initially at CFA to edit the publications. My background was as a newspaper reporter. And our boss said, you know, I have this project I need somebody to, to work on. I need a report on abuses in the financial planning profession. You used to be a reporter. You know, why don't you do that? So with the background of my couple of years as a reporter and my degree in art history, I set about learning, you know, problems in the financial planning industry. And it was just one of those things that the topic was ripe. I mean, I did the very first press I did with CBS Evening News. I was on the Today Show and the Wall Street Journal and New York Times. There was just this, the moment was right to be talking about the role of conflicts of interest, the, the lack of adequate protections in this growing field. So it, my boss being 
always open to letting people grow in the job. Let me just take that initial start and build it into what we have today, which with Micah and me is, you know, a, I think a broad and active program on a variety of investor protection issues. So with a background as a reporter and a degree in art history, how, <laughs> what, how did you get to the CFA? What, what made you interested in, in working for the Consumer Federation of America? It's complete chance. I, a friend of my mom knew that they were looking for someone to edit their publications. I was looking for work. We, my husband and I had just moved to DC at that point. So there was no logical career route that landed me at the CFA. It was all about connections. <laughs> okay, that's funny. And then one more question before I hand it over to Tony and Dina. How is the CFA funded? Are, is it the insurance industry and Wall Street that funds you guys? Or uh... <laughs> Well, I mean, they're actually, no. But I mean, there are programs just in the interest of full disclosure. We have one of the major programs we run at CFA is something called America Saves, which is designed to get um, people of moderate income to rid themselves of debt and build wealth. And that, that has over the years, gotten funding for, from various financial institutions. So we're funded. We have membership organizations uh, that that fund groups pay, that are members pay based sort of on their ability to pay. So you have groups like Consumer Reports and, and AARP that are well-funded that pay more than a group like Harlem Citizens Council. Um, we have conferences. We have an awards dinner. Uh, and then we do get grants and such. So it's a variety of sources. I will say one thing, the, the report that I initially did on financial planning abuses, the initial funding had come from an industry organization wow. that, that did not like my findings. <laughs> and so when, when this sort of problem came to a head, my boss simply mailed back the check and we published the report. So we're not, so our funding is not always entirely 100% pure, but I've never had an in instance where I've felt pressured to adjust my findings based on the funding source. And, and I haven't uh, noticed any of that either through uh, you because you, have, you don't tend to hold back. <laughs> right. Now, um, you guys are a nonprofit. Are you a 501c3? If our listeners wanted to I don't, uh, make donations to you guys in order to support you, is that something they could do? So we are a 501c3 and we've, we have recently created a specific entity within CFA called the CFA Investment Research Center, which is specifically designed to support and produce and promote independent research on investor protection policy priorities. And we're looking to get that funded. As a general matter, at most a de minimis, I mean, not even measurable in many years, amount of our funding comes from individual donations, but we are indeed a 501c3. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Um, I, I would love to get more, uh, more grassroots money into you guys. You do a great job. Thanks. So um, to, I'd like to hand it over to Tony and Dina, and we'll um, get on with why we thought you would be such a great guest for our listeners. Okay, so Barbara, we have a lot of teachers who listen to this podcast. 
So we're heavily involved in trying to change the um, egregious exploitation that we see every day in non-ERISA 403B plans. So we have a bunch of questions that we feel our listeners will relate to, and maybe you, you can give us some guidance to how this situation got to be how it is today. So one of the first questions I, I wanted to ask you for a while is, what does it say about the state of the teachers 403B plans that an organization like yours, which deals with some of the most you know egregious examples of consumer fraud, that you guys have to, have to get involved in this? What, what is it saying about the, the state of, of these teachers' plans? So this is, you know, you have this kind of hierarchy of issues when you work on investor protection issues, right? And I had, before I came to CFA, I had been doing volunteer work with the Denver Food Bank Coalition, working on poverty programs. And you think I went, started working for CFA and I thought, oh, wow, you know, so now I'm helping to protect the wealthy from being exploited. Somehow that doesn't have the same emotional appeal. But the 403B plans, you know, the these retirement issues, you're talking about middle-income people and their ability to live a decent, independent, secure life in retirement. And it's not just about helping the rich stay you know, a little bit richer. It's about people's innate financial security in retirement. And we have, a, we have been willing to create a system in which we have allowed some of the worst predators in the financial services industry to occupy that retirement system, dominate that retirement system, and take teachers who are already almost universally underpaid and then, you know, siphon off their hard-earned income in their retirement accounts to pay excess costs to retirement to these financial services firms. So I consider that just one of the most compelling issues you can work on in in this particular set of issues. It's the one that gets me the most passionate about my job. It's also in some ways one of the most frustrating issues to work on because there's so little to grab hold on, you know, when you're trying to improve the situation. It is so opaque. You know, it's not like, you know, sometimes it's, you know, it's the like the joke about you look for your lost contact lens under the light because that's, you know, that's where you can see best. It's, you know, we spend a lot of time working on mutual fund issues, for example, because the data is so good to support whatever you might, you know, whatever work you might want to do. But in the 403B, particularly the non-ERISA 403B plans, it's, there's so much opacity in terms of trying to document the problem. And then, you know, there's so so little legal foothold you can grab onto in terms of, of reforming the system other than obviously trying to get them to within the ERISA plan world, which flawed as it is, is at least, you know, better than what we see there. So, you know, it's sort of exhibit A it, for the proposition that the system is made to work for the financial interests rather than the average working Americans. Yeah, that, I think that's that's a terrific what you just said because it leads to you know the next question that I had and it said and basically you know in your opinion how did how did it get this way you know Scott wrote a book called you know the Wild West 403B that's kind of what it's like there's basically you know no oversight there's no accountability how did how did it get this way how how in the year 2018 
in an, in a society that's based on on open information how how do we have such a horrible system in place where everything is is hidden people have no idea what they're paying people are lied to every day how how did we get how do we get how did we get here you know like how did this happen so I'm actually sort of not the best person to give you the history of the 403B world and how we got there because most of my work over the years has been more on the sort of securities regulation side, trying to get to, you know, the underlying standards that govern the recommendations that brokers and advisors make regardless of which particular type of account that's being regulated. But one thing that you can see, I mean, I've a couple of years ago, I went back for something I was writing and I was reading a book called The Transformation of Wall Street, which is Joel Seligman's history of securities regulation. And actually surprisingly lively in in light of the highly technical study. And you can see even at the moment of that crisis, you know, of cataclysmic proportions in our financial markets, there were these bold proposals put forward to reform the system. And what we got sort of in the immediate aftermath was this, you know, yes, we created the SEC, but this pretty modest disclosure-based solution to the problem that had nearly destroyed, you know, that had in very real sense destroyed the economy. You know, the, the ability of the industry to come back and effectively push back against, you know, the sort of natural outrage. And you see that sort of over and over again is that there's a moment in the midst of a financial crisis where it seems like you might be able to accomplish pretty much anything in terms of regulatory reform. And then the speed with which we revert to minimal tweaks to the system is pretty remarkable. And so one of the things we've talked about, the equity indexed annuities is this perfect illustration of that. This is one of those products that is completely opaque as far as the average individual investor goes, where the costs are hidden. Um, they're, They're often sold based on misleading sales practices. There's no risk, there's no cost. What could be better there was an effort at the SEC in the Bush administration to regulate these products under the securities laws based on the theory that they were securities. And we supported that effort. And it happened to be at the same time that Congress was working on the Dodd-Frank Act that some of these issues came to a head. And in the middle of legislation that was supposed to be about reforming the financial system in the wake of yet another financial crisis, the insurance industry manages to get a special interest provision slipped in there to protect equity indexed annuities from regulation as securities. And, you know, it took bipartisan effort to make that happen. And, you know, it, it, it is just, as I say, an illustration of the, the financial services firms for as long as we've been trying to regulate this, these markets, their ability to dominate the, the regulatory response, whether it's through Congress or the regulatory agencies, to ensure that there is at best minimal impact on their activities. Yeah, well, it, it's obvious that it's, this is such a, a problem in the system and it's so deeply buried and obviously you know both 
Republicans and Democrats are, are responsible for it because it wouldn't be this bad if it was if they didn't cooperate, kind of like you said. But we we actually had a teacher the, uh, last week. You know, once we we told him, you know how how much he was paying, you know, every, each year, and you know how crappy his investments was, and he was just like. You know why? Why can't we all just get together and and file a class action lawsuit against something like this? What? What? It, why can't teachers do that? So it depends, right? You can, in fact, file class action lawsuits. You know, in the securities markets, for now. You know, under FINRA rules, an individual claim. You 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 probably have signed a pre dispute binding arbitration clause, but. The FINRA rules don't permit brokers to prohibit their customers from uh, participating in class actions. But under the the suitability standards in the insurance laws, there isn't even a private right of action in most, certainly in the model law in, a, in most states. So your only redress in those instances is likely through the, the actual insurance regulator, who, by the way, is almost certainly a former industry executive overseen by a committee in the state legislature that, by the way, is made up largely of people either in or formally in the industry. So the best thing I can say about the insurance regulatory system is that it always makes me happy that I've spent most of my time working on securities issues. You know, it's, it's, (laughs) it's appalling. You know, I don't, I don't know what, what more to say. I mean, it was the reason the SEC lost that fight on equity indexed annuities, by the way, is because the state insurance regulators were right in the halls of Congress, side by side with the industry, making that argument with them. There was no distinction between the industry argument and the regulators argument. They functioned as two sides of the same coin. Jeez. So before before Dina has a couple of questions for you, um, I guess unfortunately, what you're saying is the system is is basically rigged. Yes, the system is rigged. It's not completely. I mean, I haven't given up hope. Right, I right, still right. do my job. Some days that's easier than others, but yes, I mean, it's the system is built in in a variety of different ways to favor the industry you know they they fund the political campaigns they are they have the resources to be in the regulators offices every day they hire people who were at the, worked for the regulators and their executives go to work for them in turn i mean it is it is an insider's game it's very difficult to penetrate. Not impossible, but very difficult to penetrate. So basically the word we would use is it's incestuous. Yes. And that's actually one thing, you know, everybody talks about, oh, what, who did the DOL think they were coming in and weighing in on this issue of uh, the fiduciary standard for retirement accounts. And I think the primary reason the DOL was able and willing to move forward with that regulation is precisely because they operate outside this incestuous relationship between the industry and their regulators. You know, they had sufficient independence to be willing to look at the issues without just automatically adopting the industry talking points. We see a lot of confusion among teachers who 
really aren't aware that when they're dealing with a salesperson that they're that they're dealing in fact with a salesperson, not an, an advisor. And I think a lot of times the language that these people use as what they call themselves is very misleading. And is that not a direct violation of the Investment Advisors Act of 1940 to, to walk around calling themselves investment advisors when in fact they're salespeople? Well, so you'll notice they don't call themselves investment advisors. They call themselves financial advisors mm -hmm. or financial consultants or right. retirement planners or wealth managers. And I mean, we have argued for years, decades, that the SEC, by allowing this kind of misrepresentation, is you know, is a major source of the problem, right? It's not, we, you know, you always get these questions, are, are investors confused? Well, yeah, they're confused. That's because they're being actively misled by practices that have been given their stamp of approval by the SEC. So they have been unwilling to say, you know, they back in the uh, late 80s, I think they took the position that if an accountant held themselves out as a financial planner, they would have to register as an investment advisor because holding out in that way created the reasonable expectation that they were actually providing the services. And then they said, but a bro the same standard didn't apply to broker dealers. And there, there have been, I remember like early 90s, there was an ad, it happened to be on a day when I was testifying in the Maryland State Legislature, consider your Shearson Lehman financial consultant more as an advisor than as a stockbroker. I was like, you know, two page, full page ad, and I can't remember New York Times, Wall Street Journal. And I'm, I said, you know, I'm happy to consider him an advisor if I can regulate him as an advisor. There was an old prudential ad, it's advice that's at the heart of the relationship not product sales. And yet they're being allowed by the SEC to operate outside the purview of the Investment Advisors Act on the basis of the claim that their advice is solely incidental to their product sales. So either their advertisements are correct and they really are providing these advisory services, in which case they should be regulated accordingly and subject to the same fiduciary duty and disclosure obligations that any other advisor would have. Or the ads, you know, their ads and their titles are incorrect and they're being permitted to actively mislead investors by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Neither interpretation makes our securities regulatory system look too good. But yes, I mean, it's not, you know, this notion when I get when I look at questions from the SEC, you know, in their request for comment about do, you know, are investors confused <laughs> Uh -huh. <laughs> well, of course they are. Yes. You know, how could they not be? You've created the, you have created a system in which we have erased every landmark that would let us distinguish the sellers from the advisors. And then there's some subtle use too of language, um, even when it comes to advisors. So fee-based versus fee only. I mean, they're, they're so close sounding and most people don't realize that there is a profound difference between those two. Right. And, and, it, and it just boggles the mind why, why we're setting investors up to walk a minefield when it's not necessary. And who's it hurting, does. right? Yeah, it does. I mean, so one thing, let me go back and say there's a reason brokers use these titles, use these terms, market themselves in this way. 
And that's because their research tells them that they attract more customers and they sell more products when they portray themselves as advisors than if they portrayed themselves as sellers. So this is designed to mislead in order to exploit. And then, you know, to your point, yes, it's not just, it's not just the titles. It's not just the marketing. We're always looking out for your best interests. Really? You're fighting the best interest standard awfully hard if that's the case. But, but it's these terms fee, fee only. It used to be you were either a commission, fee and commission or fee only planner. And then the media started to promote the notion of fee only as the way to minimize conflicts and the term fee-based starts to be used in order to, again, mislead investors into thinking they're getting something that they're not. And I just have to say, if they're so proud of their business model, if they're so convinced that it's good for investors, it's hard to explain why they spend so much time mischaracterizing it in the way that they market their services. Yeah, and I, and I think it's also, you know, getting back to what you said with the um, fiduciary rule, you know, the, the, the non-ERISA 403B world is, you know, so, so horrific that, you know, the fiduciary rule won't even apply, which is absolutely insane. But Appalling. if we go back to that, um, what do you think about the industry? You know, their pushback against this fiduciary rule and their argument is, that, well, we won't be able to service, you know, millions of, of our clients now, and it'll make our advice become much more expensive. Do you, do you believe that, that that argument is valid? No. And I mean, so there are, so there are a variety of reasons I, I don't. One is a lot of the firms that make that argument have account minimums of like 200, 250,000. They're not serving small savers now. They're not going to serve them regardless of the standard because it's not profitable for them to do so. And then the other side of it, where there may be some validity, but it's not a particularly attractive argument is we're not willing to serve those smaller accounts unless we can profit unfairly at their expense. You know, unless we can sell them these exorbitantly priced products based on opaque and incomprehensible disclosures, we're not going to be willing to serve that person with just twenty or $30,000 to invest. Well, you know, please <laughs> don't let the door hit you in the... Um, <laughs> but there, there are plenty of providers who can and will serve that market and will serve it under a fiduciary standard. And the timing of this is fortunate because it comes at a point where technology has helped to make it more affordable than ever before to serve small accounts at an affordable cost. You know, when you can automate the the portfolio management process, when you can and automate the client onboarding process so that you reduce the cost of what have in the past been labor-intensive aspects of the relationship, it makes it possible to serve smaller accounts more affordably. And, you know, that's not, so you see that in the robo-advice area, but you also see that in the way traditional advisors are using digital advice platforms and other technological tools in their, you know, human 
advisory practices. So this is something we've been talking around a little bit, but if people understood what they were paying and what they were paying for, you would transform the system, right? If you, if, if you understood the costs that were buried inside that indexed annuity, for example, or that variable annuity, if, if you understood what you were paying for a one-time sales recommendation from your broker with no ongoing duty to monitor your account and make sure everything's okay, then I think people would make different decisions. And so, you know, sort of a different side of this issue is the urgent need to get that information out and out in a form that people can understand because there's research I think it runs now around 50% of investors either don't know that they're paying for advice or don't know how they're paying for advice. And divided about in that, you know, 25%, 25% roughly, 25% think the advice is free, you know, think they're not paying anything. Um, and that's not even getting to whether they know how much. That's just you know, just the most basic information someone ought to have if they're going to make a, an informed decision about who they're relying on for recommendations and what the nature of that relationship is. And so it, part of it is just if you could get people to understand what they're paying and what they're paying for, maybe they would make better decisions about that. Because on the advisor side, where there's a fee charged, it's pretty transparent. But on the sales side, it's quite opaque. It, it, I would I would go even a step further because I, I we've dealt with teachers that have been blatantly lied to where they actually ask the rep, what am I paying? There's no fee. In fact, there's a line item on the statement that says fee and there is nothing reported there. There's no amount. And they'll say, well, what's my fee? They'll ask the guy and he'll tell them, oh, you don't pay a fee. And, right. and so they really believe that there is no fee at all, no fees at all involved with their account. And yet when they call the 800 number, at, you know, after we go in and we, we talk to them and we tell them, here are the fees that you need to ask specifically. You know, what's the management fee? Is there a wrap fee? You know, what, what are the administrative costs? What are the underlying investment costs? When they rattle off this list to the 800 number, now they start getting answers. But the guy that's giving them FaceTime and it's, and it's not any one particular person either. I mean, no matter what district we've gone into, we see this. And it just astounds me. They are blatantly lying. They're not even being a little hard to understand. Here's the prospectus. Go have at the 500-page prospectus and good luck finding it. It's it, They actually tell them you're not paying a fee. Yeah, that's, as I, I think I said earlier, you know, we see that, you know, if there's no risk and there's no cost. You see that marketing for equity index annuities, and you're like, "Huh, this must be a charitable a charitable operation you're running here." It, yes, it's appalling that we've we've allowed that kind of misleading practice. There's actually last Monday was the deadline for comments on the NAIC's model best interest standard, and you'll just have to imagine the finger quotes around best interest. <laughs> and, <laughs> One of the requirements that they borrowed from the DOL rule is, you know, the requirement that there be no mis misleading statements. And, you know, I thought it was important to put in our comment, you know, you need to make clear that these kind of statements are misleading because currently we see no evidence that the regulators are taking action against them. 
But the problem, so I used to use, an, um, you know, you mentioned the prospectus. I used to use um, an example from an equity indexed annuity prospectus that had, was the illustration, the disclosure regarding the surrender fee. And it's this, this algebraic equation <laughs> with signs going out, you know, it's like to J to, to whatever <laughs> in terms of the items that are included in this calculation, you know, the interest rate at this point, the interest, none of which are known at the time. So it's this complex algebraic equation with all of the variables unknown. And that's your disclosure about what your surrender fee is. <laughs> you know, that's, 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 that's a farce. Yeah, it's, it, it is. It, I mean, and that brings me to just the question that I've always wondered. I mean, speaking about appalling, I mean, you deal with all of these lobbyists that are lobbying to keep this this exploitative system in place. Like, do they? Because do they it's really, really profitable for them, by the way. Yeah. Go ahead. But but do they do they like really really believe this stuff? Do they really feel that having a a conflicted financial sales pe- person is is better is in the best interest of an investor? Than, than a fee only fiduciary. I mean, what are these guys like? I mean, do they do they really believe this stuff? Do they drink the Kool Aid? <laughs> well, I'll give you a little illustration. Um, back in the nineteen nineties, SIFMA, the voice of the securities industry, as they say, uh, was trying to keep fee accounts out from under the regulation under the Advisors Act. And they had a whole lobbying campaign based on how great fee accounts are and how good they are for the investor. Even investors who, you know, only trade occasionally get the benefits of this certainty and no incentive to trade, you know, just to earn a commission. And they had this whole lobbying campaign built around what a great thing fee accounts were. And then they lost in court, right? The SEC gave in and put, put out the Merrill Rule, which was designed to keep fee accounts out from under the Advisors Act. And, you know, that was sort of the law of the land for about a decade. And then the Financial Planning Association challenged them in court and won. And all of a sudden, all fee accounts are regulated under the Advisors Act, such as it is. And if you look at the SIFMA's lobbying against the Department of Labor rule, you know, all of a sudden fee accounts are the worst thing that ever happened to investors. You know, they're, they are almost universally referred to as high cost fee accounts yeah. in SIFMA's lobbying. You know, it's just like point by point, you know, the, the some investors who don't trade as often would clearly be better off in commission accounts. You know, they just reverse their arguments. Now, they used all of the same sort of framing about the harm to investors with, that would occur, but they just 180 flip, you know. And by the way, when they said that there would be no money, you know, that these, these fee accounts would just disappear if they were regulated under the Advisors Act, that didn't happen. But it's the same argument, like investors are going to lose access to these accounts. So it's just, it's a really cynical process. You, there's a thing, I used to, I've played with the idea of creating a regulatory Mad Libs, you know, like you, you, <laughs> you just fill in, you know, leave the blanks for the regulation or the industry or whatnot, and you just fill in this, you know, the same 
the same sort of cynical phrases they use to oppose any regulation that would would eat into their bottom line. I mean, and that, I say that, I do think there are true believers on the other side, either who just don't believe in government regulation or who, you know, there's, there's a variety of players. But when you're talking about the lobbyists themselves, it's a cynical group. Barbara, I, it, the, this, the whole CISMA thing reminds me of, I, I think it was Upton Sinclair. Yeah. <laughs> It's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. It seems yes. like that's that's um, there is a lot of money to be made in this industry, and that's that's really what drives it. Not and and their people are just willing to put their their actual beliefs aside in order to uh, to make it. Well, you know, there's an interesting academic study out. You may have seen it. I've only skimmed the beginning of it, but the premise of it is is that it's not actually the conflicts of interest that cause brokers to give bad advice. It's their, it's their incompetence and that they do the same stupid things with their own money that they're recommending that their customers do. And which is, you know, it doesn't make them look any better, but, but I do think there's an element of that that you see. I, I, you know, I think they, you know, I think it is, the conflicts, but I think people drink the Kool-Aid. You know, I don't think, I think most think of the people true. who are giving bad advice are cynical about it. Sure. You know, I don't think most brokers or insurance salespeople are bad people who are out there trying to take advantage of their customers. I think they've drunk the Kool-Aid. They think fixed indexed annuities have no risks. They think because the commission, you know, is paid by the insurance company that there is no cost. And, you know, they believe that when they're selling those products, the system itself, you know, the higher ups, the companies who design the products and whatnot is more corrupt. But I don't actually think most of the individuals operating within it are. Yeah. You know what? That's funny, Barbara, because I remember reading a story and it was during the financial crisis. And I guess, you know, it was during one of the big bailouts of an insurance company or a bank. And, you know, the government people were sitting down at the table and they were working things out. And, and the, one of the regulators basically said, he, he figured, oh my God, I just came to this realization that this CEO is just a moron that, that, you know, it, it, they didn't do this on purpose. Like he's, he's stupid. Like, like, you know, which again, doesn't make it any better, but I, I have, I really do believe there are a lot of people out there that, that they, they drink the Kool-Aid and they really believe this because quite frankly, no one has ever showed them the other side and, and they, they don't necessarily have the mindset. They're kind of in this business just to make money, not, not, not to learn something new every day and not to, be kind of a creative person. So I I totally agree with what you just said. Right. Their training is training to sell a particular type of product. It's, you know, it's a point Michael Kitts has made at at one point that that he thought the real risk to the big firms from the DOL fiduciary rule from like class action liability exposure was around the duty of care rather than the duty of loyalty. In other words, he thought the issue was that they had a bunch of people out there who simply weren't competent yeah. to and act in their customers' best interests. I, I think that I mean, I've, I, there's plenty of evidence of that. When I first got into the brokerage industry, I actually worked at Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, and Solomon Smith Barney. And 
at one point in time, I was hired by Morgan Stanley to be an advisor, well, what they called an advisor. But I, I almost wasn't hired because I was nearly done with my CFP training. I only needed to take the, the exam. And interestingly enough, they saw that as a negative. But the reason they saw that as a negative is for the exact reason you just stated, Barbara. It, it, it was evidence of competency. Right. And th- everybody else that was in my class, I mean, hundreds of people. This it was actually at the World Trade Center in, in um, 2000 is when I had this class of six weeks in New York City. And everybody that was there, none of them had a financial background. None of them came from the industry. Every single person that was there were people who came from another sales job and specifically had no financial background. They do not want people with financial backgrounds. They want people who are good at sales so that they can fill their mind with what they need to know and then leave the, you know, the heavy lifting up to the people in corporate. And when I left the brokerage firms, I had a lot of friends there and they were good. Like you said, they were good people. Right. These were good people, most of them, not all of them, but most of them were good people wanting to do the right thing. They just had no base. They were just ignorant. But at some point, you become responsible for that ignorance. Um, you know, it, it doesn't take too long. I mean, I figured it out. I'm not the most, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. It didn't take me that long to figure out these products were harmful. But um, I, I do think there is some evidence of that. That's exactly who they want to hire is the people who don't have any um, idea what's actually going on. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're butting up against the time that we, we told you we would um, take from you. Um, but I, there is one question um, that I think is important to ask. We've, we've sort of painted a dark picture of the financial services industry here. And um, I want to give some hope to our listeners that you know, it's not all bad. Um, there are some fiduciaries out there, people who are willing to work in the best interest of them. Um, today, like you'd mentioned, Barbara, technology allows for people to work virtually. There are networks popping up like the XYPN network um, that will work from anywhere, work with anybody from any state, the Garrett Planning Network, um, and obviously Tony and Dina and myself. Uh, but what advice would you give to our listeners in terms of what they can do to protect themselves since nobody else is going to do it for them. Right. I mean, so first of all, I completely agree that, uh, you know, we focus on the negative because that's what we're trying to fix. But there's also, you know, there are good providers out there. There are good products out there. It doesn't have to be this way, you know. So the the challenge is how do you tell someone how to find their way to, you know, the good providers and then how to evaluate, you know, whether they're paying reasonable costs, et cetera. And that's it, easier said than done. You know, step one for us is you want someone who's a fiduciary, someone who has made a legal commitment to act in their customer's best interest where they have conflicts of interest to manage those conflicts in a way that they don't harm the customer, um, to minimize the conflicts so that they don't have an arrangement where they're being paid primarily by third parties. You know, traditionally we've said that the simplest, cleanest approach is the fee-only approach. You know, if you want advice, hire someone who is trained as an advisor 
who works exclusively for you and paid to give you advice um, so that you have some assurance that you can rely on their recommendations. The, the challenge there is that a lot of the fee accounts at the big brokerage firms look like that's what they are. You know, it's a fee-only account. It's, you know, the, it's a regulated under the Advisors Act. In most cases, we've seen those fees are extraordinarily high, and there are often conflicts that you may not understand, like proprietary products or, you know, where they have another agenda that they're pushing. So that, that first step, we think, and we think, you know, find someone who is a fiduciary that's, you know, typically going to be someone who's regulated either at the state or federal level as an investment advisor, who has a commitment to keeping costs as low as possible, who is willing to be completely transparent about what you're paying both for their services and for the investments that they recommend. And then do the work of checking up on their recommendations against sort of independent assessments to make sure that they're appropriate. There's a ton of good information out there between personal finance writers and websites where people can Google equity index annuities. And the first thing you'll get is 10 articles about why they're not good for most investors, you know, or something like that. So there is information that people can get access to. It's a ton of work. It's, you know, it's a lot to expect people to do, but the cost of not doing that work can be extraordinarily high. Yeah, it is a lot of work. And even when, you know, I mean, uh, Tony and Dina and I, we read these these contracts all the time. And you know, I've been reading annuity contracts for now, gosh, 20 years, m- more than 20 years. <laughs> and still, there are there's a lot of stuff that I just, it takes me hours to figure out. And, you know, when I, I'll even call the company and try to get them to help me understand it. And half the time the, the reps there don't understand it. So, uh, you know, to expect the lay person to be able to interpret this stuff, I think is, is, is rather difficult, which, which means. Right. That, I, yeah. And just to be clear, I don't think they can and should be expected to understand that stuff. That's why yeah. <laughs> I think you want you want the fiduciary advisor to understand those technical details for you because the average person is never going to understand an annuity prospectus, for example. Well, I, I think you could solve this problem really simply by, you know, investors should not buy complicated products. That's it. You'd eliminate all the work. No, there are very, very, very few people that have any business owning these products. So it's, it's maybe not so much about people having to do work. It's just people about understanding what they should avoid. Right. And, and understand what they are paying. I mean, when, when Tony and I go into schools and we outline exactly what the costs are from the administrative standpoint, from the, you know, the management standpoint, the, the fund fees, right. and we show them that we hear one thing consistently. Wow. No one has ever shown us that. And, and I say to them, well, there's a reason they, they can't show you that. They can't show you that because it's really complicated. It wouldn't fit in one little table and there'd be disclosures everywhere, you know, every which way come Tuesday. Yeah, and they'd have to tell you, you'd be, you're paying, you know, $2,000 on a $50,000 account. Which no we've seen, right. yeah, which we've seen. So we always say to people, look, whether or not you decide to, to work with us or not is neither here nor there, but understand that if something's confusing, it's never in your best interest yeah. because when someone has an excellent product and someone has an excellent service, they want you to know exactly why it's superior. And if they can't articulate that, 
then there's no point. I think that's exactly right. Because, you know, so I work on these issues from the regulatory side, right? The advocacy side. When you try to advocate clear cost disclosure, dollar amount cost disclosure, what you hear back from the industry is, well, it's just too complicated. You know, you, you just, it's, it's, there are too many variables. There's too many. And I, and I, you know, my response is, you know, those are not, you know, Moses didn't come off the mountaintop with those variables inscribed on stone tablets. You know, there, you have chosen to create that complexity in order to justify incomprehensible disclosures. So simplify so that it can be comprehensible, which is what they don't want. They do not want, I mean, it's one reason you see, for example, not to go off on a tangent at the end, but the resistance to clean shares Mm. in the mutual fund market. Clean shares have the potential to force them to have a direct conversation with the customer about what they're charging the customer for their services as the broker because they're no longer charged through the back door of the fund. They're no longer set by a third party. And that is horribly threatening to the people whose profits depend on keeping those costs hidden from the investor. Absolutely. I have so many stories on that, but um, (laughs) I have, I have like another dozen questions. I mean, we could do this for like the next three hours. Um, So (laughs) I think we're gonna have to have you on again because it's so interesting. Um, be happy to. So, but we were already about 20 minutes over what we uh, said we would take from you. Um, really enjoyed having you on. Um, I'll give Tony and Dina the last the last word here, but um, really appreciate your time coming on the podcast today. And uh, we really admire the work that you guys are doing there at the CFA. Uh, we support it 100%. Anything that we can do um, or our listeners can do uh, to help you guys out and support you. Oh, uh, please let us know. And and also, please tell us what your Twitter handle is. Oh, gosh. Um, I'll look it up. I, don't know. I was going to say, look it up, right? I think it's, I think it's, oh, it is. It's at Barbara Roper one. So numeral one. Okay, great. Tony and Dina, do you have a final, uh, final thought? Yeah, well, I think, you know, this was a, great conversation and and again you know we won't we don't want to be so negative about it because this is all about changing things and you know we we specifically will will never ever ever you know give up in this field because it's just disgusting what goes on and it needs to be changed and we need to make people aware of it and we're so happy we have you know someone like yourself that could help us out and just to to educate people because we feel you know if we can't change the law if we can't, you know, use the court system, education could be will be the answer to this problem. Well, and let me just say how much I appreciate, how much we appreciate those of you who are in the trenches who have voluntarily embraced a different way of approaching the industry. We couldn't do what we do without the support of folks like you who are are willing to shine a light on the bad practices and willing to show that it is in fact possible to do this the right way in a way that benefits investors. Thanks. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's really been wonderful. Thank you. All right. And that is our podcast for the day. Um, Thank you everybody for listening. And again, thank you, Barbara. My pleasure.